You're listening to the Fluid Fan Podcast, brought to you by Sports Innovation Lab. Welcome back to the Fluid Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Ruggiero, four-time Olympian and CEO and co-founder of Sports Innovation Lab. If you don't know us, hopefully you will, and you'll continue to tune in to this pod. We are here to support the industry being a better version of itself. We do that through data, fan intelligence, really trying to help you understand who your fan is, your consumer, and build the right strategy. At the end of the day, we're strategists because we're big nerds. We study the future of sport every day and try to help the business side of sports grow and retain fandom. So I want to welcome once again to the show, really my co-host now, Jack Barlow. This is a big day for us, a special day for, for you, for me. The a huge day. 50th anniversary of Title IX, right? It's, this is a big Ooh. deal for, for not just us, but I think uh, the, especially the U.S. Uh, uh, university system. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Obviously, we have some big news coming out today as well. We'll get to that shortly. You uh, talked about data. You know, we're big data nerds. I think this is going to be our nerdiest podcast to date, but uh, strap in. It'll be a good one. But yeah, 50th anniversary of Title IX. It's, uh, it's a big day. And obviously, this had a huge impact on your career, Angela. Uh, you know, before we get going and, and highlight our guests and our, our uh, big news, do you want to just touch on Title IX and talk about some of the impacts it's had on your life, your career? Yeah, I mean, as a athlete that got to play four years at Harvard University, you know, not a big deal. Not a big deal. It was amazing. I like literally my life has changed because um, of that opportunity. I was I'm actually first generation college student. My parents didn't even graduate from college. They really? they tried their best. Yeah, they tried their best. They had kids early. So, you know, they were they were trying to put themselves through college and then, you know, three kids in three years just puts a damper on on that plan. But uh, yeah, I, got, I mean, because of sports, I was able to get a phenomenal education, obviously set me up for for life after hockey. Why I'm such a big proponent of student athletes, but specifically Title IX, as you know, is a is an educational act. It is an act. 50 years ago, our government had the foresight to say, let's make sure all aspects of the university setting have equality. And in this case, sports was almost a byproduct. It, 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 I don't know if you knew this. Title IX is not a sports law. It is an educational act. It is. It was meant originally, and it was proposed originally by a professor that felt like she was not getting the fair end of the stick. Um, and the U.S. government took an overhaul of like what else is could be imbalanced if federal taxpayer dollars are being spent and funding these universities, then the citizens of those universities should be treated equally. So sports is a byproduct, but God, thank God, Jack. I mean, my life is completely different because I could play sports and, and get a great education in the process. I don't think I'd be here today. You know, who knows where your career path takes after that, but obviously the opportunity, you go play Harvard, you go off, you know, four Olympics, also not a big deal. So uh, obviously, that was a huge, huge moment. And yeah, that was something I learned throughout the uh, run up here, obviously had a, a good idea of what Title IX was. But you're mm -hmm. exactly right. I always thought it was a sports law. I thought it was made so we would have equality in sport. But as the run up to the 50th anniversary happened, and uh, I learned more about it, we had some great initiatives here inside the company too yeah. um, to learn more. And that was a, that was a big piece I took away. Yeah. And, and most people don't know either title nine, even as a sports law, it's, it's in some ways, I feel like when you've succeeded, you stop learning or caring or understanding. So we're not there yet. There's a long way to go with title nine. I actually wrote a op-ed today on 
where we're going to be in 50 years with Title IX. I predict it will it will be there to protect both the women and the men because of the report we're about to talk about. It's meant, again, to create equal opportunity of participation, of resources, of marketing, of all the above coaching opportunities. But our research, the growth of the women's sports community, I'll unveil it, Fan Project 2.0, today talks about the trajectory of women's sports. Again, we have more data to bring to that. And in my op-ed, I talk about in 50 years from now, this is like 2072. I don't even think I'll be alive. Oh, we hope so. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. 50 years from now is a long way. But I think it's still going to be around, but it's going to be there to protect men's and women's sports because I predict women's sports will be on such a trajectory. And again, this is based on the data that we'll get into today that I don't even know if there'll be an NCAA, by the way. I think there's just going to be professional sports and the consumer is going to love men. They're going to love women's sports if it's invested in the right way, which we predict. Title IX might not even be here. And if if it's if it is, I think it's it's to mandate equality across both genders, not just women, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. What yeah. are your, it's a big prediction, a bold prediction. But I'm like, if the prediction is that we're equal in 50 years, like, is that really that bold? Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's hope it's not that bold. I think it's a, a very reasonable idea and, you know, ties in well to what we're doing today. As you talk about the last 50 years and looking forward to the next 50, we're going to take a look back at our fan project research from last year, see how it's changed into this year. We have our CMO, Gina Waldhorn, and our head of product, Molly Tissenbaum, on the show today. So you have a great conversation with them coming up, a couple of wicked smart people, Molly, Harvard hockey alums. So, you know, she has that going with you as well. And yeah, excited to talk about the report. I think it's, you know, probably our meatiest piece of research we've had to date. And that's a lot to say. I mean, we just launched the top 25 most innovative teams in the world data-driven report. We just launched a a great piece with Dow on sustainability. And now this one obviously is very girthy in terms of the data that we use to analyze the women's sports market specifically. So if you haven't checked it out, again, we just released it. Hit pause, go to thefanproject.co or sportsilab.com, go get the report. Um, There's a free version and a paid version. So as a heads up, we believe this is a valuable piece of business strategy. Um, So if you are in that bucket and you really want to go deep, download the whole thing. I'm excited for it though. Again, the fan project had so much momentum last year that this is another version of it. We're going deeper. There's more data and it's not again, a survey which says, oh yeah, I'm a women's sports fan, but you never bought a ticket. No, this is actually observational data that we'll get into. It's the largest ever observational research study, right? And 15,000 fans and their purchasing data, spending habits. It is a it is a media report. We brought the right people to talk about it today. You know, if you're like me and you like to impress your boss, you want to sound smart, go download the report, read it, absorb it, learn about it, bring it back to your boss. You can sound smart, and uh, I'll probably have to stop talking now so our listeners can get smart. Should we bring on Molly and Gia? Yeah. So again, the largest observational research study ever on the spending habits of fans of women's sports to date. If you liked the fan project, you participated in the fan project, you downloaded your data, you're a partner, thank you. We are taking it one step further to celebrate the anniversary, 50th anniversary of Title IX. It's, uh, it's fantastic. So without further ado, yeah, let's, let's bring on Gina, Gina Waldhorn, who we haven't had yet, Jack. This is the first time. Yes. This is her debut. Yeah, Gina's first time, Molly's return appearance. So 
it's uh, it's a good one. Excited for it. All right, Jack. Thanks a lot. Happy Title IX anniversary, everyone out there. Hopefully this is informative and uh, let's go. The growth of the women's sports community powered by the FAM Project. Please welcome Gina Waldhorn and Molly Tissenbaum. We're really excited to have two of the most brilliant women in the world. They work at Sports Innovation Lab. They are my friends, but they are geniuses in their own right. Gina Waldhorn, Molly Tissenbaum, welcome to the show. Thank you. How did you get here? It's nice to be back. Two of the most brilliant women in the world. They are. Same company. Like, I lucked out. We've got like killer, (laughs) we got amazing people and I love it. I'll get into it. Molly, you're a goalie. So you're going to like step aside for a second. I want to, I want to start with Gina. This is her first, you've been on the show before Molly. So all right. (laughs) Old news. We're going to start with Gina, who's the CMO of Sports Innovation Lab. For those of you that don't know Gina, Gina, give us your background because it's super impressive. Obviously, I love working with you every single day. You're, you're like, you blow my mind. Super creative, super thoughtful, understand brands, understand this industry, understand data. Give us, give us your background so people have some context over like the horsepower we have coming into the show. Who I am and how did I get here? So Let's go. <laughs> Not even sure. So thank you for having me. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller, as they say. So I entered sports through a non-traditional path. I started my career on the ad agency side of things. So working at big media shops, Cara, Group M, focused mainly on digital strategy and communication planning for big brands, many years working for Procter & Gamble on a handful of their billion dollar brands, working for uh, Schick, UPS, Unilever at the agency side, but started to get the itch and kind of felt like agencies weren't innovating fast enough for these brands. So left the agency world to spin up my own shop with a co-founder called Evolution. And that company was focused on connecting big brands with early stage tech startups. So I said, I was trying to build a bridge between Madison Avenue and Mountain View and always had just this fascination with big, slow moving brands who had all the money, but no ideas and fast moving, nimble entrepreneurs and startups who had no money, but tons of ideas. So I started a shop to connect the two and help facilitate early stage pre-series A investment or partnerships and pilot programs in market. I ran that business for about seven years, learned a ton, loved it, worked with all the major brands from Anheuser-Busch to Dell, Colgate, Palmolive, Nestle, Purina, uh, Dr. Pepper, Snapple, EA Games, um, did a lot of fascinating work, but then took some time off to uh, make a little human. And then wait, I was- Wait, you made a human? I love this. Made a human. You made a human. I love it. <laughs> I made, made a, a couple human. of humans. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to take a little time off. Took about like six months and was recruited by a private equity firm to assume the role of president at a company called Quirky. Um, that had gone through a a very public bankruptcy, but was focused, not unlike the company I started, on connecting IP holders in the form of inventors, like entrepreneurs, with big brands who needed ideas for manufacturing consumer durables. So real fascinating platform, came in, helped with a bankruptcy turnaround for about two years, uh, made another little human, said, okay, no, for real, I'm just going to do the mom thing. I'm going to take maybe a year, two years, just see how it goes. I made it about seven months and I started seeing this old colleague of mine, Josh Walker, posting this fascinating stuff about the sports industry and the need to innovate. 
and technology being injected into legacy business models of media rights or, you know, big platforms like the Olympics needing to make pivots. And I just found all the content coming out really fascinating and hadn't really worked a ton in sports in the past. So I gave him a call and said, Hey, Josh, you're doing some really cool stuff. I'd just love to catch up, you know, maybe grab a, a coffee and the rest is history. That was almost three years ago. So I here I am. Well, I love working with you, Gina. You're crazy smart. I'm glad you flexed on all the brand work you've done. And, and the fact that you're outside in, I think also brings such a unique, fresh perspective. And congrats, by the way, two humans. Yeah, you too. You too. No I learned something feet. from you and Molly on the world of sports and data and tech every day. So I'm, I feel like I'm the, the lucky one to be. Well, we've, here. we've got a nice blend in the company. Um, so this is an all women's show, which I love today. Oh, let's go. So Molly, stay tuned. We'll, we'll get to you. Cause you know, you got, you're going to flex your analytical juice with us in a second, but Gina, this show is all about the fan project and the growth of women's sports. Um, we started last year, we put a stake in the ground because sports innovation lab really believes in empowering the industry to be a better version of itself. We're we know the fans of the industry better than anyone else. I mean, everything we do is data-driven and it's focused on this, this future consumer. And when we were talking about launching the fan project, I remember we were in Josh's backyard and saying, there's a big market here. No one's studied it. No one's used data in this analytical approach to driving investment and really unlocking value. Can you walk us through what you remember from that report, what, what it did for the industry over the past year? Uh, and just your perspective on just that 1.0 over the past year, like what has the fan project done and why was it so groundbreaking? What did it say? Yeah, I do remember it was a beautiful day. We had the whiteboard out in the backyard because it was still kind of high COVID times. So we were staying away from each other. But I think what's fascinating is the world has changed tremendously, but the decision-making between across making investment decisions from a pure investment looking for a return standpoint or on the sides of brands and media agencies and sponsorship agencies who are controlling sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to make decisions on where to invest on behalf of their clients, that process has not really changed. Mm -hmm. um, it's been nuanced and it's gotten a little smarter, but at the end of the day, they're looking at composition. So are, is my target audience, can they be reached through this channel that I'm gonna invest in? They want to know what's my projected ROI going to look like. Are these people valuable? Will they actually spend? If I put my ads in front of them, are they going to spend? They've been, you know, that's the way we've been planning for a hundred years at ad agencies. And, you know, are they behaving in the way that I want them to behave? And ultimately that's what's going to drive their decision-making. And so there was a lot out there in the market. I think we all got behind and rallied behind for gender equity and right thing to do, but no one was really just speaking this language that the media agencies and the investors and the brands were speaking. So I think for us, the fan project was really our chance to say, all right, let's level the playing field. Let's go collect the data and let's show them that one, their fans are there. They're not just a bunch of hardcore sports fans that are all women. We just proved that. We asked the fans to give us their data. And when we looked at it, it was almost a 50-50 split. Yeah, I think, but just on that, cause I played in four Olympics. I saw, I always looked up in the stands. I'm like, there's a market here. Angela, you'd expect to say, Hey, do women's sports. Like we were like, let's take opinion 
and bias and try to make it as like rigorous and business-minded and like unemotional as possible, if you will, like that, right? I mean, that's your point. Absolutely. It's just what the fans are doing. So talk us about the data and and what are the like three key findings? If someone ne- didn't read the report, which you still can, go on the fanproject.co, you can download it. What are the what are the key findings to this data-driven, unbiased like business report, which is what we wrote? So I think number one was that fans of women's sports are valuable because they're the most fluid fans of all. So we the data doesn't lie. To your point, no opinion. The data doesn't lie. We saw everything these. Uh, individual fans did on their social media platforms and even off in some cases, some cases that they use social sign on for up to like seven to 10 years in some cases. Hmm. And we saw that fans of women's sports were exhibiting fluid fan behaviors and acting like fluid fans, which we know were early adopters and super valuable up to five years before general sports fans and the general public. So these are super tech savvy fans who are willing to pay to access the content that they couldn't find anywhere else. And these were passionate fans of women's sports. So I think the first thing we did and we proved that fans of women's sports are valuable. And then the second thing we proved is that they're exhibiting behaviors that are trending in the market that we know are only going to increase in value and that make for the kind of audience a brand or an investor is looking for. So they're doing things like co-watching and they're clamoring to get on all of these streaming platforms that are offering interactive features, right? So everyone's trying to find the streaming audience. They're fans of women's sports. We showed that they were trying to access athletes and become more invested in a path that's shorter to get direct access to athletes, whether that's just connecting with them over social or buying their merch or maybe buying remnant ticket inventory. So when we find those, those fans are making those athlete connections, they're more valuable. And we proved that that was happening. And there's other behaviors in the report that we just kept showing over and over again. They're betting, they're spending on the brands who invest in them. All of this, we started to show at a macro level, these fans were behaving in this way. And then I'd say the third thing that we uncovered is there's a business model here that when put into place, will deliver exponential returns. And that's a community-based business model. So we kind of proved that all of these fans form this tight-knit, super passionate community. And if you produce, distribute, and measure content in a way that sticks with this community, you're going to reap the benefits. And we showed that for Nike, we saw you know somewhere up as 2,000% increase in engagements talking about Nike after Nike started sponsoring women's sports. The same for Visa, Anheuser-Busch. So I think we really did a good job on painting the landscape. The fans are there and they're valuable. They're exhibiting the right behaviors. And there's a business model that if you enact, you're going to see the returns. Yeah, I love that. So again, high level, these fans are fluid. They're technologically savvy. They're spending money. So it's depth over breadth. Traditional men's sports, of course, have the reach. But we're saying there's depth to these fans and that this community-based monetization model reimagines traditional revenue streams. It, it allows the industry not to lift and shift the men's model, shrink it and pink it. It's actually a model that's fit for purpose, built for the fan of this industry, of this sector of the industry, the women's sports, which is different. It's like, well, duh, tell me, okay, well, we'll move on to 2.0 in a second, but like you come from the brand side, like would any other industry treat their 
consumers the exactly the same way, even no. though they're different. Yeah, no, that's not, not really like groundbreaking, but like I'm, it's like how did why did it take our research to really like show that it's a different consumer and therefore you should build the business model differently. Yeah, I mean, we do a, a lot of work with Google as a client and, you know, we've looked at things like search habits of fans of women's sports and something just as simple as that immediately starts to tell the story that these fans are like looking for, they want to know more about their salaries and they want to know who they're in a relationship with and they want to know what they're wearing and they want to know their college journey and, and how did they get to where they came from in their hometown and their favorite food. And they're just so invested in a different type of storyline and perspective on the sport. They still care about the game, but they want more than just the game. And, you know, again, to like, oh, we'll let the men's game run late and then we'll cut to a women's game you know, halfway through the first quarter and there's no shoulder pro programming and there's no awesome stats that tells you how they compare to how they did last time. And there's, you know, of course you're it's, not going to get, I had this debate the other day, Gina, someone was like, well, I was talking to my boyfriend and he's like, well, the women don't dunk. And like, and it, the, the conversation for too long has been about, we can't jump as high or run as, anyway, I don't even get into it. And I said, okay, just like park that. It's just, a subpar experience we're just we've underinvested yeah. in the women's game it's not as entertaining because of that and to your point the programming around it the shoulder content the storytelling the the context is just not there because it's it's yeah. underproduced and and distributed on you know the wrong platforms and, and anyway it's just now when it's when it's rolling out now even just you know recently the the dream on it's getting fantastic ratings yeah. and people are you know gobbling up that content so you're yeah. starting to see now more storytelling and the results but again if you watch like a women's golf tournament and a men's golf tournament the men's is like full of all these stats it's like oh how far the wind velocity yeah. like all these stats and then there's like maybe one little thing on the women yeah, like we'll tell you who's golfing right now yeah yeah <laughs> it's like basic yeah. marketing i don't know we'll move on in a second i just remember i was at the new york liberty game a few weeks ago with kia clark who's on our women's executive leadership board and the Psy family is invested in like both the men and the women and the women get to benefit from that. Like the crown club, we had this killer cocktail hour. I mean, it was, I was like, I was like, man, I'm a baller. I get to like walk onto the court and I got this really, I get to have a drink. And I'm like, if I lived in New York, I'd be buying season tickets. Cause I'm like, that's a great experience. It's not yep. the ugly stepchild arena that the women get to play. And no, no, you're, you're like, so shout out if you were in New York City and listening to this, you should go to the Crown Club and get season tickets. Yes. But anyway, so marketing, it's all the above. So we've, we've laid out the plan, the business model. Again, I'll repeat the community-based monetization model, which leads me to this year. So we've had a year to get feedback from our women's sports executive board. They're all amazing brands, partners, properties, investors in this space. We've talked to the market and we're data nerds. So we're like, what data would actually move the needle for the industry? Let's not sit on our laurels and be like, oh, like we put out a report last year. No, that's not, that's not the way Sports Innovation Lab rolls. We're like, let's go further. Let's go deeper. Let's be more analytical. Molly Tissenbaum. Molly's Harvard hockey too. So I, you know, got a little special place in my heart. <laughs> Molly, can you open up for, for this? Gina's done a great job of laying out the first year. I'd love to just bring you in quickly. Talk about this study and why it's so important and how, I guess, how, we, how we've gone one step further in year two. 
Yeah. So first off, thank you for having me back. It's been a while, but this is the thing that I'm, I'm most passionate about is applying the, the data to the women's sports case and to back up and, and sort of piggyback off of what Gina set up for us. The thing that makes this study so powerful is a, the size of the population we were able to observe and analyze. But what I think is even more powerful and, and indicative of the true growth of this market is what we were analyzing is what these fans are buying. We're not asking them to fill out a survey. We're not asking them to tell us what they want to see. What we're doing is we're looking at where did they actually put their credit card down and say, I want to subscribe to ESPN Plus, or I want to buy something from Nike. Follow the money. Yep. Follow the money. So not largest observational research study on the spending habits of women's sports today. Largest ever, by far and away, yeah, right, Molly? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the really exciting thing. We were able to seen thousand fans of women's sports in this market. And again, this is only we've only been doing this kind of analysis for I would say six months at most. Ten thousand every so ten thousand because I think you broke for a second. Ten thousand more higher. Fifteen. Fifteen. Sorry, yeah, my, I love my, my internet team. cut out. <laughs> I love when my team like you know. No, no, no. It was bigger, Angela. Thank you. Keep going. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, it, and we've only been doing this for a few months. And the nice thing about what we've built and the power of what we've built is this goes, we can look backwards and we can continue to track into the future. So this, we expect this number to grow as there are more opportunities for fans to buy tickets, merchandise, to subscribe to things like just women's sports, right? There are these new opportunities to put your money down and say, this is something I actually want to buy into. And every time that happens, we're able to start tracking and getting more data to continue to tell the story about why this is actually a massive growth opportunity. Love it. All right. So largest observational study ever done. Just going to flex on the women's <laughs> sports community, fans of women's sports. That's men and women. If they're spending money, how are they doing? So we, we track the money again, Gina, maybe you can jump in. Why was that the first metric coming out of fan project last year to say like, well, this all the things we could do to move the needle in the industry. Cause we've heard a lot about the 4%. Oh, let's like track media. There was a lot of like ideas on what would actually move the needle. Why, why this metric? Why now? Cause everybody's chasing those greens. I mean, brands. Yeah. Brands want to know that if I put my money here, the people I reach are going to spend money on me. They want to know one that they're high value to begin with, right? They've got some disposable income. They're going to be spending on my brand. And so to be able to prove through, again, observational, not asking them, would you buy? This isn't surveys. Surveys are nice to have. They play a role in research. But if you really want to make a point, follow the money and show that these fans are spending. They're spending on the game and they're spending on the brands and the companies that broadcast and bring them the sports they love and give them the coverage and the content they so desire. And then they'll show the reward to the brands who come in and sponsor by buying those brands at a higher rate. And Molly will probably dive into this uh, at, a, at a higher spend per fan than general sports fans. Yeah. All right. So we're following the money. We said of all the things sports innovation lab could do with our amazing data team, we're following the money. We think that'll move the needle for women's sports. It'll show that it's an investable opportunity and you're leaving money out there. Molly, what's the metric? What, do, what is this new metric that we've, we're putting out into the industry and how did the women's sports industry do? Yeah, so the thing that we focus in on as our big sort of metric for success for this industry, as Gina pointed out, when we were looking at the community-based monetization model, it's about producing, distributing, and measuring differently. So we figured 
we'll start with the measurement because that's where we think we're going to be able to move the needle most from an investment standpoint. And what we came to is this idea of a community growth score, which is looking at both how quickly people are joining the fans of women's sports community and how well we're retaining those people. Because those are two things that we know that marketers, they analyze and they both cost money. So if you're able to add and keep, your, your market is going to grow and there's going to be a massive potential and an opportunity to continue to grow. And when we compared fans of women's sports on this growth score with what we call general sports fans, so that's traditional sports, we found that the growth score for the fans of women's sports community was 40% higher than it was for general sports fans. That's a pretty significant thing to say, to be able to say with data, because that indicates the, the upside for those people who are getting involved now and investing growing and retaining those are the two things that every investor wants to know that there's an opportunity to do yeah so, so, this so let me that, 40 percent yeah yeah 40 percent. <laughs> this is the but there's no reach like oh sure they're valuable yes maybe they'll spend on my brand maybe okay i'll fine i'll believe you they're not just women it's men and women's but there's just not enough of them and what molly and the data team have done have measured the growth the acquisition rate so how fast are, is the women's sports market acquiring fans? So are they acquiring lots of new fans and are they doing it quickly? And then are they retaining their existing fans? So make sure that, well, they're not just coming in and they watch one game and then they never show up again. No, are they retaining fans? And how fast is that retention rate increasing? So when you take a look at those two measures, this is the community growth score that Molly and team have developed. And so that reach argument just doesn't hold water when you think about from an investment perspective, are you gonna invest in an asset that's you know growing at rate X or a rate that's 40% 40 40 higher than that? Like, mm. where are you gonna put your money when it comes to a return? Mm -hmm. The smart bet for any investor would be an asset that's growing 40% faster than another asset. Yeah. I liken it to a startup investment, an early stage investment versus a later growth stage investment, which is still, look, I look on the men's side of the house. I'm like, they're doing pretty well. Private equity is coming in. Their valuations continue to rise, but like at a pretty steady, steady Kager, it's not going to be something that, you know, would warrant VC investment. And in, in our case, in women's sports case, I'll say our, cause I was in the world of women's sports. That's how I think about this asset class of like, yeah. look, maybe a little riskier because it's early and you get, you know, just like the XFL, some of these early leagues go out of business. But if you can put the right amount of capital and look at this momentum score, which again is like, you don't have the churn that you have on the men's side. You're not having, they're flocking towards these, these, these new products on the market, these new leagues and, and new women's sports property. So I love this new metric. We're going to continue to use it at Sports Innovation Lab. Molly, can you dive into, at a high level then, what are some of the findings outside of just this 40% growth score? Yeah, I think one more one more thing before we move into the, the sort of nitty gritty, really data nerd stuff. When we came up with this idea for a community growth score, we anticipated that there were going to be people who were skeptical of this idea that this is such a massive opportunity. So one of the other things that we looked at and that is in this report throughout the whole, the whole report is a metric that we call spend per fan. So we're not just looking again at the potential for the growth in this market. We're also looking at what, when we compare again, general sports fans and fans of women's sports on a bunch of different categories, mm -hmm. brands, what we see is 
fans of women's sports on things like let's go with you know streaming platforms as an example that that have both men's and women's sports fans of women's sports are willing to spend and are spending seven percent more than general sports fans so this argument that there isn't an audience there's no upside they're not gonna you know it's not worth the money what we're starting to try and do is chip away at that with the actual dollar value of these fans of women's sports nice money <laughs> bring me the money all right gina lay, lay on some some data some statistics all right, so we started off and we said, look, at a community level, it's growing faster. It's got a higher growth, community growth score than general sports fans. Well, then we said, all right, let's deep dive into this community. What makes these fans so valuable? And maybe what are the attributes that is contributing to the high growth and momentum behind the women's sports community? And what we found is we kind of isolated three core characteristics of fans that honestly will make any community strong, that they're tech savvy, that they're purpose-driven and that they're athlete-led. Mm -hmm. So these are three characteristics that have direct impact on how much money the fan is going to spend with you, how long they're gonna stick around, how loyal they're gonna to be to you, how viral they're gonna make your content, how loyal they're gonna to be to the brands who sponsor you. So there's lots of different reasons why those three characteristics, if fans display those, you have a higher value community. So mm -hmm. on the first one, kind of being tech savvy, Molly was able to find that these fans of women's sports per fan spend more on things like cashless payment platforms like Venmo and Google Pay. These are indicators that these fans are early adopters and they're using these platforms more often and they're spending more on these platforms than general sports fans. Um, what was one of the other indicators, Molly, in, in tech savvy? Yeah, when we think about the tech savvy fan, one of the other things tying it back to our, our behavioral research is looking at creator platforms. So things like Photoshop, Adobe, you know, Patreon, where you, again, those are also money generating opportunities for the athletes, the brands, et cetera. And in the last five years, fans of women's sports, again, using that spend per fan metric consistently outspend general sports fans. So when we think about the things that make a strong community, it's again, how fast they're growing and retaining. So check that box. How much are they spending? Okay, we're checking that box. And are they tech savvy? Are they invested in the athletes, which is part of the product? And do they, do they spend with their values? And we were able to see, again, checking sort of all those boxes that there's a, there's a story and there's a, a real business case for why this market is ripe for investment right now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you want them clipping highlights and doing the like TikTok drip of the concrete runway. <laughs> like, oh my God, I fall in the wormholes all the time of like, what the players are wearing on their way to the game. And if you have fans that are tech savvy and know how to do that and are spending money on the platforms that allow them to make that awesome content, you bet your content's gonna be a lot more viral than kind of fans who you know yeah. aren't getting involved in those tech platforms. Well, coming back to the community-based monetization model, which was our recommendation of the market last year, now we're actually measuring those communities. We're showing, as you just said, they're deeper, they're spending more, they're more technologically savvy, they care. That's gold. That's gold. Uh, yep. And I think about as this industry moves into web 3.0, where the interactivity and bringing people together in a digital atmosphere, look, sports originally was about 
hey, come to the game. I got a physical ticket. We're going to hang out. We're going to drink a beer. We're going to hang out and talk sports in a, in a physical atmosphere. COVID broke that apart. The whole industry is now moving to this global, digitally savvy platform. I mean, sports is a platform now. It's, a, it's, a, it's an asset now that's, that you can layer things on. And what I love about the research that you both did and the team was what we're saying is that this community, the women's sports community, is the most ready for Web 3.0. Yeah. And look, everyone's yeah. chomping at the bit to invest in this, and we're not there yet. But like, just from a high level, you got the fans. They're going to spend the money. They're going to create the content. They're going to create the community that will make that environment thrive. So again, we're this is an early indicator of where the whole sports market is going. Molly, where the puck is headed, right? Well, I got to use it with you because <laughs> um, I'm happy I'm here so you can use all the hockey metaphors. Well, want. just I like, you know, no offense, Gina, but I like when hockey, you know, I like I like talking hockey talk every once in a while. I forget I was a hockey player. That just gets me so excited about this research. It's again using data to show not just this market, but like I would be studying the women's sports market to know what's going to go, what's going to happen in 3.0 if that's all you care about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then the next thing we kind of really looked at was this idea of being um, purpose-driven. Mm. And so that's really important because it keeps a fan connected with your league or your team or the athletes outside of winning. Like there's yeah. a lot of fair yeah. weather fans, especially in traditional sports, and it's about who's on top. And then they get pissed when they lose and they abandon you. And if you've got a fan who's aligned with your values or you stand up for a cause, and it doesn't always need to be super political. Sometimes it is, and that's meaningful. Sometimes it's just about being more sustainable or being more equitable in how you treat your athletes. But women's sports does a great job of communicating that and it's getting better and the fans really care. Mm -hmm. And so when we tried to analyze, again, based on some hard data of are these fans more purpose-driven than general sports fans, we found that the spend per fan of a fan of women's sports versus the general sports fan on charitable organizations, higher and higher for the past five years and growing every year. So these I'm, are- I'm seeing a lot of nonprofits hear this and go, oh, like- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like they should be reaching out and doing partnerships with women's sports teams and leagues and athletes. Like these fans donate because they really care. They wear their hearts on the sleeves. They're gonna sell out the merch. Like yeah. do more merch collabs, the say your name stuff. Like this, they, they care it. They want to wear it. They want to share it. They want to talk about it. And so we've looked at not just like charitable donations, other indicators that just really show that these fans are purpose-driven. And if you've got a purpose-driven fan, they're going to stick with you through, th through thick and thin. And the other, the other piece of that is outside of thick and thin, being a values-based organization or aligning with values-based organization doesn't have a schedule. It's not cyclical like mm -hmm. your, your TV schedule or your playoff schedule. That's a 365 days a year opportunity that, yeah. again, when you think about the ways that fans of women's sports spend, we're leaving a ton of money on the table yeah. as an industry because we're not leveraging the passion of these fans to align with those brands that align with the athletes, the causes, et cetera, that they care about. That's a, that's a massive miss, missed opportunity in my mind. Well, I think back to my... International Olympic Committee days where I sat on the executive board there. I was a member for eight years. That's a values-based movement. We call ourselves a movement with a capital M, not a sports organization. And yeah, by the yeah. way, we've all seen the numbers of what these top sponsors pay to be a part of that 
movement that values based it's bigger yep. than sport. it's sport it's not about the athletes it's about not about the country even it's about global peace i mean what's possible through sport again they've they've leaned hard into that messaging as you know and it's what they stand for and they're rewarded in the market so um i love just that again for some reason professional sports in general sees it as a bad thing sometimes when is when in reality there's opportunity so all right what about i know in our data we looked also at purchasing directly from athletes and the influencers they love these communities hone in on that aspect in terms of you talked about technologically savvy values based but like they want to go direct to athlete why is that so important yeah, I could jump in on this one. So when we wrote our, our athlete-driven media report a few years ago, we were starting to see not just that athletes were becoming their own brands, because that's been happening for a while. Angel, you know better than anybody. You were one of the first professional women's hockey players anyway on Twitter. So that's been happening for a long time. But the opportunity to then take that and say, I'm going to set up an Instagram shop. I'm going to drop my own clothing line directly through Instagram or Facebook, where, again, we know these digitally savvy fans already are. Again, coming back to that that metric we've been we've been looking at, fans of women's sports spend 30% more on those social media sites versus general sports fans. Hmm. So it's about shortening the distance between the fan and the thing they want to buy, right? That's an opportunity to do sort of that payment integration, one-click opportunity. But it's also about where are they already, right? Athletes are, are building their brands on social media platforms and the fans are going to follow them to see what they're what they're wearing and then to buy from them and for teams lots of teams on at least you know a lot of the men's sports teams have been launching instagram shops and here you are like they're 30 more that's five percent like that is a yeah. that is a big number 30 percent more they are active and they're spending on these direct-to-consumer social media channels another one we looked at just as a leading indicator is something like StockX, which yeah. has a platform called DropX, mm. which is really where they do a lot of collab drops with athletes and influencers. And we just saw kind of year over year, especially come kind of the 2019, when they started rolling out a lot more of those drop features, like spiking year over year, the fans of women's sports are spending almost 100% more year over year on platforms like StockX, where they can get access to these kind of exclusive drops with collaborators. So I definitely think as we see the market as well, starting to evolve in some of these players coming up. I mean, there's still room, like no one yeah. has cornered the market of yeah, an yeah. marketplace. We've seen a couple people kind of get in, get into play and then kind of back out. And we, we talk about a few of these companies in the report, but if someone's looking for like a startup idea, go nail <laughs> how athletes sell direct off of the traditional, you know, Facebook and the meta, like they need more money. Yeah. Um, I would go explore that area because the fans are hungry for it and they're looking for it. And fans of women's sports are spending in direct to consumer athlete channels. All right. D to C everyone's pivoting that direction. But again, the research says that this community is extra valuable. We got a couple more minutes. What are some last findings here? I know there's some data we have around fans spend with brands who sponsor the sports they love. We'll talk about the brands themselves and what we found in that space. Yeah, so I think this is part of what we, when we were drafting off of Fan Project, you know, 1.0 and took, talking about growth, we wanted to look at the brands that had invested early on in women's sports. 
and see how, again, are these fans responding? Are they buying more? And the answer is yes. We looked at Nike and Dick's as, as examples and the, the full detail and, and sort of data is, is in the report. But the, the sort of bottom line is after those massive announcements that they were going to invest in the women's game, whether it was basketball, soccer, hockey, doesn't matter. The amount that, these, that fans of women's sports spend on those, those brands goes up, not exponentially, but pretty close. And again, it's, it's the power of buying with your values. If I know that Nike is going to support professional women's basketball, professional women's soccer, professional women's hockey through their Bauer brand, I'm much more likely to consider that and buy Nike products, which is, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I'm one of those fans. And what we see is over the last five years on both Nike and Dick Sporting Goods, two of the, the sort of major marquee brands, that that is the case. And then we like, we know you like to do, Ange. We followed your lead. We threw some punches. We found some areas where we think there's a big missed opportunity. So there are some auto brands, the CarMax, Buick, who have done a fantastic job starting to, you know, invest in the women's sports space. But there's a lot who have not. And we show, again, with spend per fan, that fans of women's sports are just plain and simple, a higher value consumer. They're spending a lot more on auto brands than fans of general sports. And we're not just talking about women here, because again, I can hear the skeptics. Oh, well, they're all women and women just spend more in general, which is true. If you just looked at the general population, women versus men, that's not what we're looking for. But yeah, and and just to clarify, because I know growth of women fans is a massive opportunity. Everyone's looking at like, how do, because we know that they control purse strings in the household and are spending more. But this is also, this is saying, this is again, fan of women's sports, men and women are actually more valuable than that general sports fan, including women. Yep. And we look at luxury brands. Yep. We look at, I mentioned auto care. We look at sustainable brands. We look at travel and we prove through the data and through the spend that these fans are spending and they're spending at higher rates than general sports. So all of this is in there. And it's like I said, this is how brands plan. This is how investors make decisions. So we're trying to speak their language. Ching, ching, ching. All right. Uh, the growth <laughs> of the women's sports community powered by the fan project. That's the name of the report. Gina, yep. how do we, how do you download it? How do you get access to it? We want obviously anyone that's interested to listen to this podcast, but uh, but really lean in and spend more money. <laughs> yep. You can find it at thefanproject.co. Visit us at sportsilab.com. Follow us on social media at sportsilab. We'll be promoting the heck out of this thing and it will be available for your download and your consumption pleasure. Perfect. So again, we're dropping in intentionally on the 50th anniversary of Title IX. That's just a U.S.-based law, but it's a pretty good one that's enabled, I believe, this entire, as a U.S. Olympian sitting on the board of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee for eight years, it was our magic bullet. If we didn't have Title IX, we wouldn't win the medal count. It's, it's enabled so many athletes, both U.S. and internationally, to compete and train for the Olympics but I believe it's also a law that's changed hearts and minds. It's enabled women to get the same education, the education of sport, education in general, and be better citizens globally. So it has just, it's 50 years. I'm just so lucky I got to compete at the NCAA 
Division One level. I don't know, Molly. You want to throw your appreciation of Title IX since you know we're dropping it on a on a day that we think is pretty special here in the U.S. It's it's incredibly meaningful. And again, I I grew up in in Canada, and the the opportunity to go to school and to play a sport at the Division One level without Title IX simply doesn't exist. And that, not to be pedantic about it, quite simply changed the trajectory of my life. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you to you both. I certainly wouldn't be working for Sports Innovation Lab. And the idea that, again, I get to spend all of my time looking at data to help grow this industry is wildly exciting because that means that there's an, another generation of little boys and girls who are going to get to grow up in a world where women's sports is a thing. They're not going to have to go searching for the Angela Ruggiero, you know, to find them on, on Twitter. It's going to be everywhere because that's what the fans are demanding right now. And the data backs it up. All right, Gina, drop your vision for the women's sports market. Like I, I, I wrote an op-ed on the, the next 50 years of Title IX. That's just Title IX specifically, but given the work that you both, the tremendous work, by the way, that you both have done for this research, I'm just like, again, two of the smartest women in the world right here, you're listening to them. They're gonna drop the mic for this podcast. Like, where are we headed? You can, you can forecast 50 years from now or 10 years from now, but like where this research shows there's a market. Do you think that people actually invest? Are you skeptical? Oh, they're going to invest. No, I think they're going to invest. I think this is going to be a, a, you know, hundreds of billion dollar market. And I think you're going to see athletes take, you know, become the new, you know, Kardashians. They're going to take female athletes and women's sports stars are going to become such a zeitgeist in culture. And we're already seeing it. The way they come up, the way they use social media, the way they get behind their causes is just accelerated and deeper than a lot of your, your men, your, your male athletes. And so I think the industry is going to boom. And I think the athletes are going to become cultural icons in a way that they have not reached, you know, you've got a couple of them, the Megan Rapinos and, you know, Sue Birds, but I think you're going to see a ton more just like, like you have become an idol to so many women and athletes in general. I think we're going to see the market explode and the athletes just take a place in history. And we're going to have a hundred Billie Jean Kings instead of one. Love it. Molly, what do you think? Where are we headed? Again, I, I can agree with Gina because the, the data is, indi- is indicative of, of that massive growth. But I think the, the really exciting thing, again, for me is that we're getting to a point where there's a generation of, of kids, young kids, like your kids, both of your kids, who are going to grow up in a world where it's not uncommon to have role models and icons, men and women. And that changes the dynamic and the power balance of who gets to make decisions about everything. Mm-hmm. right? It's not just who gets, you know, their, their sport broadcast. It's everything, right? So as more boys and girls get to grow up in that world, the, the balance of power and, and equity starts to become a real thing that is like tangible, you can taste. And that's what I think is the most exciting thing about the business case for women's sports in the next, whether it's 10 years, 50 years, whatever it is, that to me is, is easily the most exciting piece yeah. of this. I love Great. that because again, Title IX, you've got at the collegiate level, at least here in the U.S., but this report is about the broader global business opportunity. I love what you said, Molly, about it's little boys and little girls looking up to women and being like, that's normal, duh. Um, 
I have to tell this story. Sorry, I'm just going to go on a tangent here. <laughs> I met Angela Merkel about 10 years ago. And I was like, oh my God, you're like the chancellor of Germany. Like, oh my God, so cool. How, you know, you're this great female role model. She goes, yeah, my best friend's three-year-old son or four-year-old son at the time was like, mommy, do you think a boy could ever be a chancellor? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember that Amazing. story because I'm like, totally like this young man has only grown up with you seeing a woman as Billie Jean King always says, if you can see it, you can be it. It just, it changes perception. And therefore that's why I love what we do at this company. Cause it's about not only making a ton of money for people, we want to invest to make money off of women's sports. We want athletes to have that opportunity. Maybe the one that I didn't have. Um, and a lot of us didn't have, but it's, yeah. it's like, why is sport like sports so much bigger than just yeah. like it, it makes a difference. So thank you for both of you being here cutting the data, promoting it. The fan project has been uh, a pleasure to do at Sports Innovation Lab. Again, the growth of the women's sports community powered by the fan project. Gina, anything else? Fanproject.co. 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 What else? At Sports iLab. Follow us. Let's go. Gina Waldhorn, CMO, Molly Tissimone, head of product, but like more than that, you do everything. (laughs) Uh, thank you for being Let's here. Go. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being on. Our right, big thanks to my guests, Molly and Gina, for walking us through the report, a needy research report on the business case for women's sports, what to do, how to invest. Hopefully, it's going to impact the market. Just want to emphasize again the power of this research. It's data driven, largest observational research study ever on the spending habits. Money, money, money. It's all about the money, the Benjamins. They are a very, very good fan base to own and to grow. And so, again, I'm super proud of this. And to my team, Jack, they did a phenomenal job. You're, you're part of the team, right? I mean, that was, that was a pretty good, pretty good piece of research we're pumping out at Sports Innovation Lab. Yeah, I mean, they just keep coming, I feel like. Each, each week we're dropping a new piece of research. It's uh, making my job fairly easy because I get to be the promoter, the mouthpiece in, in terms of all the smart research and data-driven assets that we have. What have um, we done recently? Give, give a quick shout out if people are ooh, fans of I Sports mean, Innovation Lab. Where do we go? Yeah, what do you, what, what's uh, available? It's been quite a month here of June. We have the top 25 most innovative teams in the world, the 2022 edition. We had our Dow report with sustainability. Like you mentioned earlier, that's a great piece of research that we produced in collaboration uh, with Chris Chandler and his team over at Dow. And then we have this report obviously coming out today. Uh, we're very excited for, once again, the growth of the women's sports community powered by the Fan Project, uh, another iteration from that great program we started last year. Little tease, we have a report with Extreme Networks coming out pretty soon, so that's on the docket. Keep your eyes out for that. I'm sure we'll be touching on that in the show shortly. If you want to get smart on the most innovative teams in the world, sustainability, the women's sports market, go to sportsilab.com, thefanproject.co, CO download. It's going to be fun. Yeah. A lot, lot, lot of content coming out, Jack. Thanks for, for all you do to make sure the industry knows what we're up to. Yeah, of course. No, I'm happy to do it. It's a, uh, it's very easy when the smart people produce the reports and I just get to pick out the nice looking graphs and figures <laughs> and everything and throw it out on social. And then I get to talk to you about it here. So, yeah, so much fun. Well, I want to, again, thank my team because can't do anything without a team. I would say life is a team effort running a business is absolutely a team effort and all of the research we put out is a team effort. So thanks to my team. 
want to wish everyone a happy Pride Month. We're wrapping it up. Proud of the LGBT community and the visibility that everyone in it, including myself, promotes this uh, this month and uh, just raises awareness in general and just you know continue to do what we're doing at Sports Innovation Lab to use data to empower the industry to be a better version of itself. So uh, Jack, thanks for helping with this show, helping with the fan project and, and this new report that I, that I think will be groundbreaking for the industry. Yeah, I think it's going to keep up the momentum that we had last year. Like you said, made a big splash last year and kind of laid the foundation. And this year, it's not a nice to have. It's an actual business case. It's driven and it is ready to go. All right. So download it. Thank you for listening today. Check us out on all anywhere you can find podcasts. Please subscribe and tell us what you want. Who do you want to hear on the show? We will do our best to get them on. Talk data, technology, the fan, the business of sports, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and I'm going to give a plug to Jack. You know where to reach me. Go to go to his his handle at Jack Barlow underscore STS and give him some give give him a hard time for a change. All right. <laughs> yeah, feel free. Reach out. I love when people engage there. You uh, may want to mute me during some Boston sporting events, but hey, always putting out some great content. You're, you're very superstitious. I will get into that later. But anyway, we'll wrap. Jack, you're the best. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next time on the Fluid Fan Podcast. 